Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. What is up, my friend? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a great day. We got a great guest for you today hanging out on the Speaker Lab podcast. Hey, whether you are brand new to speaking, you are just getting started, maybe you've been doing this for a little while, you're trying to figure out how to get paid more or how to just book more gigs. Maybe you're looking to figure out how to build your business beyond the stage through through books or consulting or coaching, wherever you're at in your speaking business or journey. Really are glad that you're here and uh, hanging out with us. Hey, one quick thing I'll mention to you. If you haven't already, we do a, a free, just about weekly live training, teaching you all about how to find and book speaking engagements. So if you haven't joined us for one of those before, I would highly recommend you come hang out with us. Uh, you can register for that by going over to freespeakerworkshop.com. Again, that is freespeakerworkshop.com. Register for the next one. Again, totally free, totally live. And uh, that way we can hang out, connect online. I can answer any of your questions about speaking and I'll kind of walk you through a step-by-step plan and system on how to find find and book paid speaking engagement. So definitely register for that. Again, go over to freespeakerworkshop.com. All right. So today we've got uh, my buddy Judson Lapley that's hanging out with us. If you have ever seen the YouTube video, The Evolution of Dance, you remember that? Remember that video, the guy that did the dancing and kind of went through all different types of dancing? That's him. All right. So he is uh, is done a lot of speaking and was using speaking, was doing speaking whenever he this video kind of came into the interwebs and, and blew up. And so we kind of talk about that. That. Talk about a variety of different subjects and topics related to that and how he, he used that. But we also talked about how he had actually been performing for five years prior to whenever he published that video. So we talk more about how he got his start. We talk about the, the market he thinks is actually easiest to get started in. We talk about how he determined what to speak about, who to speak to, and then also how he transitioned markets to new audiences. And then finally, last but not least, make sure you stick around for the story that he shares about the time he was... Uh, Let's just say threatened by a mob boss. So that's a great story. You're uh, you're not going to want to miss. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Judson. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Hey, today I'm joined by my buddy Judson Lapley, who uh, has been speaking for quite a while, but uh, he he's, he's a speaker. He's got his hand in several things, but he, he's also known as the evolution of dance guy. And uh, so he's been around on the interwebs for uh, many, many years now. And definitely, I think for a while, weren't you the number one like most viewed video on YouTube? Yeah, I held that spot for four years, basically, until Justin Bieber hit puberty. Uh-oh, and then it went downhill from there yeah. for you yeah, and for so, the rest of us. Yeah, so when he came on strong, I, that kind of lost, I ended up losing that that position. Nice, very good, very good. Well, uh, Judson, first of all, why don't you give us a quick overview of who you are, what it is that you do, what you speak about, some of the audiences that you speak to, and then we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Sure, sure. So I started speaking, really started speaking in high school. I was involved in student council and was fortunate enough to 
get elected to the state board my senior year of high school. And so that gave me the opportunity to go around to other schools as well as conferences and kind of represent the, the state student council association. So that was kind of my first foray into speaking. I knew that I wanted to do it. I knew that it was something that I would love to do for a career, but I didn't really know how I would do that. And right. so that kind of always stayed in the back of my head as I went through undergrad at a small school in Ohio called Bluffton University and then even graduate school. And while I was an undergrad, I met a gentleman who spoke on college campuses, brought him to my college campus and coordinated with the student senate and got funding for it. And then I ran into him again during graduate school. And I sat down with him. I said, hey, do you think I could get an hour of your time to just discuss the business and this whole, you know, how did you end up doing what you did? And he was kind of overjoyed because he was looking for people to actually do some of his programs when he couldn't go or if he would get double booked. And so that was kind of my first insight with a mentor who really gave me a lot of really good information and helped me kind of look at it from both the performance side and from the production and business side of things. You done some speaking in high school. You saw him speak and, and brought him in. What were you studying at the time? Or were you thinking like, you know, like speaking would be fun, but it's not realistic or like what made you, I guess, even ask him to, to get together? Were you thinking like, this is a realistic option. I just need to figure out how to do it. Or where were you at at that point? Well, I was studying, I was a recreation major when I was in high school and when I was involved in student activities, I always really enjoyed the activity side of things when we would do constructive games and structured experiences and learning initiatives and the ropes courses and all those things. And so I was drawn to the world of recreation management for my degree itself. And I really excelled in running games and activities with people. And so even the first couple of programs that I created when I was in college to present at the different conferences I went to were on things like the power of play and using activities. So I was always kind of in that world of presenting. I just didn't realize it. I didn't realize that that's what I was doing was considered part of the professional speaking world. And when I gave this guy a $1,500 check to come speak for, basically he, he agreed to throw in an extra program and he did an hour long training session with some of our student leaders. And then he did his program in the evening, which was on dating and relationships. And when I handed him a check for 1500 bucks at the end, and this is, this is 1997, or it might have been 96, 97, somewhere in there. I was like, holy cow, that's incredible. Right, right. Especially when I'm in college, because I was like, oh my God, this is like all the money that I make <laughs> my entire school year washing dishes or cleaning showers or whatever it might be in the, my student aid job. And so that was kind of my first, oh my God, this is something that you can actually do for a living, yeah. at least as far as this. And he had said when I, and then it, he became a friend and somebody that I could actually talk to. It wasn't just somebody that I saw. And he actually suggested off the bat that I go ahead and go to grad school. He said, it's not a guarantee of any sort. He goes, but a master's degree is an instant level of credibility. He goes, as you do this for a living, you have to establish credibility as quickly as possible to whoever it is that you're selling to, or whoever it is that's considering hiring you. And a master's degree is a level of credibility. It's, it's something, whether you agree with it or not, but an institution who has been accredited has said, you have completed the requirements necessary to obtain this higher degree. Therefore, we anoint you as someone who has credit. Right. And nobody can ever take that away from you. And he said, you know, it's a good degree to have. So if, if you burn out, if you're unsuccessful at speaking, if you decide you don't want to do it anymore, you then also still have that to fall back on. So that was really beneficial and looking at it that way, because a lot of times when we, people are interested in speaking, they're just like, oh, I just want to speak. I just want to speak. I just want to speak. 
and I get it. And that's fantastic, but it helps to have that time to figure out what you're going to do. And so I was able to speak while I was in graduate school, while I was considering going into it Mm -hmm. and continue to gain education at the same time. So even whenever you first sat down with him for that, that one hour, just to pick his brain, was there anything that he said to you? So you said that the grad school and go on and get your master's degree, anything else that he said, just in terms of the, the speaking business that you felt like, because again, it's, it's one thing to see a guy, you know, do something and you're like, Oh, I, I could do that. You know, I think that there's a lot of people yeah. listening and I think whenever <laughs> we, I know like probably when you and I got started we would see other speakers and be like, Oh, I could do that. But is there anything like once you sat down with them and talked to them that made you feel even more like, Oh, okay. Like, yeah, this is something I could do. Or is it like, what did he say or do that, that kind of helped you to go from there? I don't know if there was any one specific piece of advice or if there was any instance. My parents did a good job of instilling in me that if there was ever anything that I really wanted to do, I could go after it and do it. I was, when I was younger, my parents were kind of dabbling in the world of professional speaking. They had actually gone to a state meeting for the National Speakers Association. So they went to the Ohio Speakers Association. They used to listen to Zig Ziglar a lot, yeah. which meant that I in turn listened to Zig Ziglar mm-hmm. a lot. And some of those ideas and some of those thoughts were instilled in me without even me knowing it. And so honestly, I never, I never questioned whether or not I would be able to do it. I just questioned, okay, what's the best possible route and what's the smartest possible route to go after it? Yeah, that, and that was both. And that's what's interesting is that both inspired my parents and scared my parents. Right, right. There's <laughs> that unbridled confidence that, yeah, I'm just going to run out there and figure it out. But I think that the, what you, the way you described it is so accurate for, for how so many of us feel. I know I felt like that when I got started. I know I can do this. And I've done a, a few speaking things to feel like, you know, I'm decent at this. And with some work, I could probably get pretty good at it. But if someone would just show me how, like, how do you actually get a gig? And how do you know how to find things? And how do you know how much to charge? And how do you know what to, what to speak about? It sounds like you were kind of at a similar spot. Yeah. And that's where I, grad school actually really came in handy. So one of my classes was, I actually got my master's as in education, but it's in human movement, sport, and leisure studies with a specialization in recreation and leisure. So I got a master's in recreation and leisure on top of things, which is phenomenal. That sounds fancy. It, is, it really is. It was a ton of fun. But one of the classes was kind of a general business class. And our professor, who was a wonderful woman, um, she said, I need you to write a business plan. She's like, I don't care what the business plan is. She goes, I got no skin in the game when it comes to what the business plan is about. You just have to write a business plan. She wanted us because it was a general business class to understand. And so I was able to actually write a business plan on creating a speaking and training company. Gotcha. So I I interviewed a bunch of people. I, I did a lot of research and I really sat down and crunched a lot of the numbers. And everyone defines success differently when it comes to speaking, but I was still in my early, early 20s. I was living on $180 a month rent because I was splitting with two other guys in a $540 a month, you know, half of a house. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of expenses. And so I remember thinking, okay, if I can just do 10 to 15 shows in one year, in my first year, mm-hmm. I can bring in X number of dollars and I can probably sustain that. And so I wrote out a five-year business plan and all of those things. And I started in the college market. That was one of the other benefits that I learned. Most people, when they say, okay, I want to do this, they go, okay, great. Who are you going to talk to? And they go, I don't care. Anybody, whoever, whoever will hire me. Yeah. And that's, 
exactly what we do, but that's not very good from a marketing standpoint. Right. You know, you got to have a smaller target because the smaller your target, the easier it is to focus and hit that. Right. And of all the speaking realms, the college market is still to this day, the simplest, not easiest, but the simplest barrier to entry. Because there are still organizations that specifically bring bookers and acts together. Looking here, I was looking at just pulling up your video here. Evolution of Dance is 10 years old. Yeah, That's April, crazy. this past April. I know. <laughs> That's nuts, dude. And it's nearly 300 million views. Yeah. Like, how long had you been speaking when the video came into play? Well, I'd been speaking and I'd been doing the dance for about five years. Why did you so decide could... to do the dance in the first place? That was one of the other great pieces of advice one of my mentors gave me. People have heard the phrase before. People don't remember what you say. They'll remember how you make them feel. Right. And that's really true in what we do. People will only remember small bits and pieces of what we do. And the narcissist in us wants us to believe that we're changing people's lives instantly, that we're giving them all this wonderful information. And you can give people a lot of information. Maybe they'll go back and remember some of it later. But from a recall standpoint, if they can remember one thing that you've said, that's, that's fantastic. That's phenomenal. Yeah. You know, if you have a limited amount of time. And so I wanted to create something that would be memorable, that would tie in one of my themes. One of the things I talk about a lot is change and dealing with change and understanding change. And I wanted to do something that represented how things change, not necessarily negative or positive, but just simply the fact that things are going to change. Right. And I came up with the idea for the dance. I went out and did it one time. It was really, really short. It was really, really quick. And it went over really well. And then I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And so I was lucky that I got a five-year, I workshopped the dance for five years hmm. before the quote-unquote video was released. Yeah. And I just got lucky that if YouTube would have been around when I first started and a first version of that would have been videotaped, it would not have done what it did because it was not good when right. I first started doing it. <laughs> well, I think that's a great point too, not just as it relates to the video itself, but just speaking in general, that it's, it's really easy to watch someone speak and they're just really, really good and they're just polished and they're just winging it. They're shooting from the hip. They're making it <laughs> off the top of their head. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like there are hours and months and years of good, bad, ugly gigs that went into the one gig that you just saw that made it really, really good. And so I think that's yeah. a great example of, you know, the video you watch, you're like, oh, he just, he just got up and he just, he just made it up when that came out kind of cool. It's like, <laughs> no, 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 like you've done it for years and years and years and plenty of times where I'm sure it went well and plenty of times where I'm sure it didn't. Oh yeah. You know, I, people, I always, I use the example now, a lot of people know the musical Hamilton. Mm -hmm. Everyone's heard of the musical Hamilton, you know, and all the stuff that it's done. He workshopped that Lin-Manuel, he was working on that for seven years. Wow. And any Broadway show goes through this thing called a workshop where they basically, they all get together and they run through lines and they're changing lines. And I mean, even up into the days before the Broadway opening, they're changing lines and pulling songs and putting stuff back and forth because it's a constant, it's a constant process. And that's so hard to get people to understand. Right. There are some people who are unbelievably naturally talented orators and they can stand up with no preparation and deliver a speech that is better than 99% of all the speeches you'll ever see. Right. And then there are people who deliver the ones that are incredible and you didn't see the several year process that went into creating that. Right, right. So leading up to that, curious, so the idea of change, I know I need to end with something that's going to be, that's 
connected to change. Did you have any, any background in dance? Had you done dance before? Or like, I, I just, for me, maybe I'm just, I don't know, too white. I can hit dance or something. And I'm just like, <laughs> there's no possible way I could pull something like that off. So was there anything that you'd seen that like, oh, I could do something similar to that, but do it with dance? What, like, how did that kind of come to be? There was never that particular moment. I think part of it was, was I did dance. I have rhythm. I'm fortunate enough to have a rhythm. I'm not a trained dancer. I never took dance class. I did one year of show choir when I was in high school because I could dance. Yeah. They asked because they were short on guys. They asked, oh, I knew one of the advisors and he asked me if I would join, which is ironic because I can't sing on key. <laughs> so they would put me in front and then tell me to mouth the words <laughs> because I would have a tendency to sing a little too loud and out of key really, really bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. I was an aerobics instructor when I was in graduate school. Nice. I got stuck teaching the class for one semester and I actually enjoyed it and it was a good workout. So I went and got certified. So rhythm was something that I had. Gotcha. gotcha. When I saw the idea came to fruition and I kind of was like, you know, and I look back now and I'm kind of like, yeah, it, it's amazing that it never crossed my mind that I shouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, I, I never thought, oh my God, people are going to, and partially I think it was because it is a funny piece. It's that combination of nostalgia and funny. And so I, I wanted people to laugh at me. Right. Right. And I think that's a little bit different than if you're just going out there to try to perform and it's supposed to be a serious piece and you're afraid that our people are going to laugh at you. Right. I think you made a great point earlier when you were talking about how that for better or worse, and speakers, I don't know, maybe we're just in denial on it, but the reality is, is that most audiences are going to forget 99% of what, what it is that we say uh, a couple hours later, you know? So I remember one of the first times we hung out, we've done, I don't know, a handful of gigs together. So and have crossed paths over the years, but I remember, I remember us talking about it and I remember you said, no matter how the talk goes, I always have the dance. You can <laughs> <Yep>. always, <laughs> always fall back on that because it is, it's memorable and you know, you know, like at this point that the audience is looking forward to it the whole time. Like, is he going to do the dance? When's the dance going to come? And it, it's it's definitely something that, that keeps people engaged. Do you still do the dance today? I still do. Yeah. Nice, nice. And you've updated it though, right? You know, it's it's ironic because the dance exists because things are changed. It's yeah. called the evolution of dance. And it would be pretty hypocritical of me to not continue to actually evolve the dance itself. Right, right. So, which is both good and bad because now it's eight minutes long. Yeah. So I'm dripping sweat by the time I'm done. <laughs> so in the five years before the video came out, how are you getting gigs? How are you kind of figuring out what you're speaking about? Kind of talk us through that process. That's where the college market came in really, really helpful. So when I started speaking, I approached it from multiple, multiple facets. I looked at who was being hired. And, and this is just in the college market. This is all I was focused on because, again, it's got the simplest barrier to entry. And there are these things called showcases that exist within the world of what is now NACA and another organization called APCA, which didn't exist at this time. And I was watching all the speakers and there was no one who was doing a conscious blend of comedy and content. Yeah. And so I have several friends who worked at universities who were the people who hired speakers and comics and bands and hypnotists and all these different things. And I sat down with a couple of them. I said, Hey, has there ever been a speaker that's done like a combination of comedy and content? And they all said, no, not really. They said, that's interesting. It would be really difficult to pull off. And part of the reason I was looking at that was because students on college campuses 
won't come out of their dorm rooms for many, many reasons. Right, right. They will never come out of their dorm rooms to go hear a motivational speaker, at least not most of them, maybe 5%. And those 5% are the ones that we need to remain friends with because they're (laughs) going to be the ones changing the world. But so I came up with an idea of something that was just called inspirational comedy was the name of the show. It was just inspirational comedy. And the reason I did that was because it became a much easier marketing tool for the campuses themselves. Because my friends all said, listen, we have two, we have two things that we are beholden to when it comes to the things that we do. Number one, we have to ask ourselves, will students come out for this? Yeah. And two, we also are trying to find things that will be beneficial to the student. But number one, it's because they use student money. It all comes out of the activity fee that students pay. So a few years ago, there was a big uproar at Rutgers when Jersey Shore was at its height. Rutgers had hired Snooki to come in and do two programs, and they paid her, I think, $23,000. Wow. <laughs> they hired the following week, the same university hired Maya Angelou. And paid her 20. (laughs) Now, a lot of people got angry at that. What they didn't know the rest of the story was Snooki did two shows each. At each show, there were 2,500 people. They sold out both shows or gave away all the tickets. Maya Angelou spoke in the same theater and 400 people showed up. Wow. So if you're using student money, you got a much better cost per student. Yeah. So anyways, on that rant... That's why it was I created the thing called inspirational comedy because then schools could actually book me in their monthly comedy slot, yeah, and not feel like they were sliding one past the students, right? Right, <laughs> and so I was getting gigs that way because I figured out what the schools wanted and what the schools could book. Too many speakers, I believe, when they get started, and and this has got there's both pluses and minuses to it because you want to stay authentic they don't look at it from the person that's hiring them perspective. Mm -hmm. They don't say, okay, what will this person book or what will this person hire? What are their needs and what are their wants and how can I provide and align my passions, my abilities up with what it is that they're looking for? Right. Right. So true. That's one of the things that we, we talk a lot about here is that, you know, you and I, we both know speakers who I have a cool story. So who wants to hear my story? It's like, that doesn't work. You may have an amazing story, but like it has to check the boxes of what a particular client or decision maker is looking for and not just be a cool story just for the sake of a cool story. So you have those five years, you do the video. Did the video catch fire immediately? Like what was kind of that that timeline like? And then I'm curious also, was there anything that you did to just capitalize on and utilize, holy crap, this rocket ship is taking off. And so let's just hang on for the ride and try to do the best that we can. Or like, what did you do to kind of take advantage of the, the YouTube sensation that you quickly became? So there were a lot of things that I did subconsciously that I look back on it now or like, yeah, I was brilliant. I totally planned that the whole way. <laughs> the video took about five weeks when it first started going viral before it really went bonkers. And this was in the early days of YouTube videos or even really just even YouTube. So viral videos weren't around and all those things. So it was kind of the wild, wild west. Nobody really knew what to do, didn't really know. So the biggest thing that I think I did was I just said yes to pretty much anything and everything that I could. I was fortunate at the time that I wasn't dating anyone. I wasn't married. I didn't have any reason to not be gone 
as much as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. You know, as we get older and as we get more into our lives outside of speaking, speaking is a wonderful thing because it affords us the luxury and the freedom to do other things. But then we also have to carefully craft our lives in sync with that so that we're not gone as much as we need to be, you know, so it's kind of, I have a reason to be home now. I'm married. I want to see my wife. I don't want to be gone all the time. But when the video first hit, I I mean, I did everything. I did anything and everything I could fit into my schedule. And I think that helps a lot. On the other side is I was fortunate that when it comes to having a viral video, if you are continuing along the path that you are already on, a viral video is a great booster if you are trying to shift and do something different or new because of a viral video, then you're starting from scratch again. And so as a speaker, this video comes out, people see it. They're like, this is great. We love this. That's awesome. What does this guy do? Like, I don't understand. That's all. I got that question a lot. Like, what do you do? I don't understand. And so I was always very careful in all my interviews and all my TV appearances to make sure that they mentioned that I work as a professional speaker, that that was part of that process. And there would be times that people wouldn't say that. And so you have to make sure that you bring it back up or you have those sound bites or those one lines to remind people that that's what it is that I do. The dance is just part of that bigger thing. So I was able to really take advantage of that by continually reminding people that this is what I do for a living, that I'm a professional speaker and the dance is part of that. And that was one of the big benefits of all of that exposure that people realize that that's what I actually did. I would go and just dance. There were lots of times that people just wanted me to dance. And I would say, okay, sure. What's the price? Well, it's this much. Okay. Well, what if we just have you dance? Well, it's the same price. Okay. Well, we'll just have you dance still. <laughs> I'm going to dance either way. Yeah. So. so you want to pay me for six minutes of my time instead of 60 minutes of my time. Right. Okay. No problem. Right. No problem. Do you feel so, like having the, the video pigeonholed you in any way? I'll tell you in about five years. Right. <laughs> I, I was gonna, you know, the running joke is there's going to be a day when the dancing is going to go from funny to sad. <laughs> and I just need to make sure I know when that is. Right, right. You know, and I've gotten to that point now where I'm, I'm older. I just turned 40. My body is not in the same level as it was when I was in my, you know, 20s and early 30s. Yeah. And so physically, there's going to be a limitation to how long I can do the dance. I don't know when that's going to be. My goal is to at least make it to 45 performing the dance at the same level that I am now. But I mean, I'm one, I'm one injury away from not being able to dance at all. Right. Sure. You, know, you, know, you never know what happens when you get to this point. And so when that happens and I work to get gigs and I'm talking to people, will somebody still hire me? And I mean, I, that's created a fear in myself as well. We all worry about whether or not anyone's going to hire us. And I'm fortunate because I have that dance and it's, it's so well received and people like it. But when the day comes that I stop doing that, will people still be interested in hiring? Right. Right. Well, and one of the things that you kind of referenced there is that, you know, you'll keep doing the, the dance as long as it's relevant. But one of the things that you've also, I know trying to do behind the scenes is make sure that you, you keep yourself relevant, not just with the dance, but just speaking in general. You mentioned whenever you got started, you were doing primarily college stuff. I know today you've got a bit more of a, of a mix. So how have you kind of transitioned from one market to another market and kind of what does the business look like today? 
Yeah, I'm really fortunate that I have that weird business model where I actually have three markets. And you can make the argument that each one of those markets suffers a little bit because I'm not as focused on that market as I might be, mm-hmm. which I agree with 100%. But I'm fortunate that it's my business. So I get to choose to do it the way that I want to. Sure. And I still enjoy the educational market. So high school, middle school shows, student leadership conferences. I still enjoy colleges and getting to do some of the colleges, especially during orientation season, and then also leadership activities throughout the year. And then I still do a lot of corporate stuff. So my business is pretty much divided in thirds, a third college, a third education, a third corporate. And then within that corporate, it breaks down into nonprofit slash association, and then what I would consider straight corporate entities where, you know, it's a company hiring you or a big conference that you're going into. And I think part of what it appeals to me as well is that really keeps me on my toes to make sure that I'm staying relevant to the audience that's there. Right, right. It's, it's easy when we talk to people that are our own age, because we know that they're going to get our references. Right. But if I can't go to a high school audience and be like, hey, do you guys remember playing Operation when you were little? Because <laughs> they don't. They're like, what's that? Right, right. The save by, save by the Bell references don't work anymore. Yeah, they don't work out so well. I'm like, I got to be like, hey, do you guys remember playing your Nintendo Game Boy? And they're like, <laughs> uh, what's that? Son of a gun. Right. Back to the drawing board. Was there anything that you did to, to make kind of that conscious transition from, okay, I'm primarily doing college stuff. I'm primarily doing uh, high school stuff to I want to do more corporate stuff. Because I know there's a lot of people who would be in that spot or just going, I'm over here, but I want to get over there. And I'm not quite sure how to make that leap because I'm known as this guy. I'm known in this niche. I'm known in this market. So was there anything that you did to start to make that transition? I've always felt that people hire us for two reasons. Number one, because of who we are. Number two, because of what we talk about. And 99% of us fall into the, what we talk about category. Yeah. You know, there's a guy named Tim Sanders who has a line that's still, it's one of my favorite lines of all time when it comes to speaking. And he said, your speaking fee is directly proportionate to the amount of time it takes the person who hired you to explain it to their boss. And I was like, that's brilliant. He's like, you know, if you're on a committee and you go to the person in charge of the event or company and they're like, who'd you get to speaking? We got Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. They're $75,000. Yeah. Okay. Who'd you get? Well, we got this guy and he did this video and he has this one book and he does it, you know, it keeps going down every time they have to explain it. So when it comes to entering new markets, I think if you're going into a market or an, an organizational area or a silo or whatever you want to call it, it's going to start off as a topic. It's going to start off as what it is you talk about that can help solve whatever problems they have. And then eventually, if you're, if you're in that space long enough, then you can build up a name for yourself. You can build up a following for yourself. And then people might start to hire you because of who you are. And that, I think, is what's so hard because if you, you know, we all have egos. And if you build yourself up into one area and you're well-known in that specific area, it's really hard to go to another area and be like, oh, okay. But you guys don't understand. These people over here, they really like me. I'm something over there. Yeah, they hire me a lot over here. And they're smart because they know what they're doing. And if you just give me a chance. And so it's hard to go back to that square and not market yourself as the who I am and more on the this is what I'm talking about. Gotcha. Gotcha. Do you feel like 
in some ways that you are starting the, the, like when you're shifting to a new market where you are an unknown that you are in some ways starting over so you still have I still have my stuff over here that works in this market but over here I'm brand new so it is essentially like I'm brand new getting started over there yeah you are I mean you're, you're entering a new market and so that's why marketing is so much more important when you're first getting started now the beauty is is the product that you're going to deliver isn't going to be a new product yeah you've got a lot of time and a lot of skills. And even if you look at when any big corporation decides to enter a new market or a new product line or things like that, you know, they spend a lot of time on the marketing aspect and sometimes not enough time on the actual product aspect. But our product of speaking, even if we're speaking about a subject that we're maybe not as expert in, or we're still learning more, we're still gaining it. The actual performance side of speaking, we don't lose that. But that we don't lose that. So if we can convince someone in a new market to hire us, we've got all those years of expertise from speaking to go along with it. So I think that's what's beneficial is if you can just get the first few to hire you, and then you know you get your referral letters and you get them to write nice things about you, and you ask for a couple of other people in their industry who maybe might be able to hire you, and you do all those wonderful things then it becomes much more easier to continue to work in that space. Right, right. Again, going back to when we were getting started, of just work with what you've got and you do one gig and you leverage it to get another gig and use that to leverage it to get it another gig. And it, it's a slow process and it takes time, but it, it's absolutely possible. But I like what you said though. At that point though, you know your product, the, your speech, your talk, even though like some of the content may be tweaked for the, the new demographic or niche that you're speaking to, but you know as a speaker that you know what you're doing and you know, that's something that's been honed and, and dialed in. Yeah. And, you know, speaking, there's a skill and an art to speaking, regardless of what the content is. And there's a comfort level to being up there. You know, that's the other part of it. You know, I think that's what's so great and, and wonderful and mesmerizing and interesting about speaking is, is that there's so many levels to what's going on. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, the pure performance aspect of things. And then there's a psychological aspect of things because, you know, so many people fear it. There's the, oh my gosh, everyone's staring at me side of things, you know, and that's what, it's just such a great mix of emotional, spiritual, physical, mental, that, that aspect of it is what's so amazing. And so when you, the more you do it and the better you get at it, the easier it is to transition into new programs, new ideas, new content, new markets, the marketing side and the getting the gig side still is always difficult then when you get them, the delivery on top onto that is a little bit easier, I think, every single time. And I don't want to brush over that of what you just said, that no matter how long you've been doing it, no matter what level of, of recognition that you have, no matter if you at one point had the world's most famous YouTube video, like it still takes work to get gigs. You know, I, I think that that's always kind of a misconception of, of just you reach a point and yes, granted, it does get easier the longer you do it. But there's still a level of just like you can't just sit back and wait for the phone to ring. Like you still have to, you still have to yeah. go out there and bust your butt to, to make things happen. You never can. I mean, that's that's what's so funny is I think our world of speaking parallels the world of comedy a lot. Right. There's a lot, there's a lot of similarities and crossovers. And I remember listening to a podcast with Chris Rock was the guest, and he was talking about. He says, you know, the more famous you are, and the more successful you get, the longer time you can take off in between hustle. And he goes, I'm famous. I've been around a long time. He goes, and I can maybe take off six months yeah, tops. Yeah, right. He goes, and then everybody's like, hey, what else you got? Right, <laughs> like, right. They're already onto that. You know, and Seinfeld said it in his documentary, you know, he goes, because I'm famous, because I'm well known, the audience gives me an extra five minutes. Right. 
when I walk out, I get an extra five minutes before they'll start booing and walking out. Right. But you still have to be funny. You still have yeah. to, you still have to deliver. Let's wrap up with this. So as a speaker, I know you've done a lot and uh, you've had a lot of gigs that have gone phenomenal and I'm sure you've had some that have gone not so phenomenal. So can you tell us about a time where it w- can't be worse than this? So I had this one gig. There's a tiny area in Chicago, Illinois, that's close to the airport where it's mostly hotels. Yeah. I'm it's not a... going to say the name of the city because I don't ever want this to come back. So you pinpoint was... where it is though. <laughs> I know, but if somebody figures it out, that's fine. Cause they can do some research. I get hired for this gig because the person that's hiring, it's like a big event for a politician, a political person within that city, a kind of like a big gala, all this stuff. And I got hired because the person's daughter had seen the video, had loved it, you know, and they, they had like an after dinner, 40 minutes, whatever. And so I don't really know anything going into it. I, it was still at the height of the video and I was still kind of just, my brain was a little scrambled. So the show didn't go bad. It was not the best setup, 45 minutes, 40 to 45 minutes, mostly comedy was all they wanted yeah. after dinner, open bar that type of stuff. So it's not the best atmosphere, but that's beside the point. So before I go on, they tell me now when you're done, the gentleman who's, you know, we're here for tonight is sitting in the front row, you know, blah, blah. You need to make sure you go over there and shake hands with them. I was like, okay. So I get done. And again, it didn't go bad, but it didn't go great. And I do the dance and then everybody goes nuts at the dance. And I go over and shake his hand and stuff. And he just whispers, he goes, you know, it's, a, it's, he goes, thank you very much for being here. It's really good thing that you got that dance at the end. Like that was awesome. <laughs> so then I go and like start doing some research. And then it turns out that this, this, this whole town all this stuff has all these mafia ties and all of these embezzlement <laughs> schemes and like all of these people, like the gentleman that was in, that was there that we were honoring has been in, under investigation for like the last five years <laughs> for all this stuff. And I was just like, Oh, I just had my own Godfather moment and I didn't even realize it. That's amazing. Yeah. You, so that was fun. It's one of those, like after the fact, you're like, Oh my gosh, I, I should have kissed the ring. And then, uh, yeah, I should. And I'm, I'm glad dead. I didn't know going in. Cause I probably would have been like really, really nervous. Yeah. That's crazy. I had, um, <laughs> several years ago, speaking at a gig and, there was some of those helping put the event on and they came up to me ahead of time and they're like, Hey, it was, it was a deal that was like open to the general public type of deal. And so they told me right before I was going on, they're like, Hey, there's a guy out in the audience that seems really suspicious, but we've got police watching him or security watching <laughs> him. So we just wanted you to know. I was like, great. Oh. I'll try not to think about that while I'm on stage being picked off. So there's a guy. <laughs> oh. It was just rattling in my head. So I immediately figured out where he was sitting and I'm just watching him for any sudden movements and trying to like stay focused on whatever it is I was talking about. So yeah, that would definitely be a little on the distracting side. I'm sure you've had this before too. I don't know if you've ever had doing the, doing the high school stuff. You get some schools that are a little rougher than others. And I had a principal once tell me if they start throwing stuff at me, I can get off stage. (laughs) Thanks for the permission. (laughs) Yeah. Because they had had somebody who was really bad, I guess, the year before, and students started. Because you, know, I mean, you know, teenagers—they don't pull punches if they right. don't like you. I mean, if you lose them, they're gone, they're out. Right. Some will just ignore you, but apparently, at some schools, they'll start heckling you and throwing stuff at you. There was one I did a couple years ago that they told me they said we haven't had a speaker in like eight years or something. You're the first <laughs> one because eight years ago they started throwing 
basically inappropriate things on stage at the uh, it's like the la- it's like a senior prank type of thing. And yeah. so they said we've been scared to death. and it was one of those things like the teachers, the administration, everybody was on edge because I was the first speaker back in like eight years and they were just terrified on how, awesome. how the students would go. So yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty wild. So these crazy war stories of life on the road. So, well, yeah. Judson, I uh, appreciate the time, brother. And uh, hey, if people want to find out more about you and check out what you're up to, where can we go? You can always go to my website, of course, which is just my name, Judson Lipley, J-U-D-S-O-N-L-A-I-P-P-L-Y at, or not at, just .com. Sorry. Beautiful. We will uh, we will link up to that in the show notes. So thanks for the time, man. Appreciate you. My pleasure. Have a good one, man. All right. There you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Judson. Sharp dude. Good dude. And a uh, really big fan of Judson and his work. So uh, definitely check out his stuff. Check out his YouTube videos if you haven't already. Hey, again, one quick reminder. If you haven't already, definitely register for the next upcoming free workshop that we are teaching all about how to find and book speaking engagements. So you can do that by going over to freespeakerworkshop.com. Again, that is freespeakerworkshop.com. Register for the next one of those and uh, we will see you there. We'll catch you next time, my friend. You're awesome. Awesome.